When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arse Blog Arsecast right here on arseblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well, or at least dealing with last night's 3-2 defeat to Manchester United well enough to prepare yourself for an hour-long discussion on that, on this particular podcast. That's what we've got. We were playing last night, so we've just recorded this morning. Uh, got a conversation with Ryan Hunt from Stadio, Phil Costa from One Football, touching on all the aspects of that game. Uh, I'm not going to do too much waffle at the start of this because I think we need to just get on and get into that conversation. Just a couple of very quick things. One, thank you very much to everybody who sent kind wishes and messages regarding the uh, Football Supporters Association Award, the win, uh, the win, the one, the win, the award that we won on Monday, <sighs> got there in the end, Fan Media of the Year. Uh, which includes the podcast, which includes arsblog.com, which includes Arsblog News, all the coverage we do of the men, the women, the youth team, and everything else. Uh, and we're very happy uh, to have uh, picked up that award. It is, uh, or it was, based on your votes. So if you voted, thank you very much indeed. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, we'll keep doing what we're doing, and hopefully we can make it three in a row next year. The other quick thing is to all the people who sent messages on Twitter and every else uh, saying that the Arsecast was the number one, the number two, or in their most listened to podcasts of the year on Spotify, because Spotify do their, this is what you did on Spotify thing. And uh, there were loads of them and just way, 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 way too many to reply to all of them individually. But if you're listening to this, which I'm sure you are, because the reason you sent those messages is because you listen to the podcast. Thanks a million. Thank you so much uh, for your continued support and for your ears. We really, really appreciate your ears. They're great, and the sound that we put in them, uh, the fact that you like it, it means a lot to us. Okay, let's get on with this. Uh, It was a very frustrating night at Old Trafford, a disappointing night as well. And I think there are plenty of issues for us to discuss. So let's go right ahead and do that. First up from One Football, it's Phil Costa. Hello, Phil. Hi, Andrew. How's it going? It's fine. Well, not great, but anyway, we'll get to that. And uh, from Stadio, we've got Ryan Hun. Hello, Ryan. Hey, Andrew. Phil, let me start with you. I think when you analyze a game like this, you look at the, the lineup first and foremost, and there were maybe a couple of surprises in there. But Kyle Saka didn't make it, so Gabriel Martinelli started. But I think the one people will focus on primarily is Mohamed Elneny in central midfield. It was his first start of the season. And I suppose if you're looking at it um, to try and see the logic of it, it worked really well at Old Trafford last season. But just because it worked well at Old Trafford last season, I'm not sure that's the reason to go for it. It felt a little bit to me like that was the driving force behind the decision, which is quite strange because a lot of what Arteta has done in the last few weeks have been based on what you might call a meritocracy or how well people are playing. And when when Albert Sambi Lukonga had a bit of a tough time against Liverpool, he showed faith in him and played him in the next game. And he played very, very well against Newcastle. So how did you view that decision? I thought it was strange. Um, you know, when the, the kind of the pre-match uh, murmurs are coming out and you can see, you know, who's coming off the, the bus and who's doing the media duties and stuff. Mm. And then I saw, I think it was Chris Wheatley say Elneny was starting and I'm kind of like a bit confused because he's played six minutes before or 63 minutes or something stupid like that before um, starting this game of Premier League minutes. And it's what you said before, Sambi played very well against Newcastle. I think he was 
probably our, one of our best players on the day. Um, and I just found it very strange because I put myself in Arteta's shoes and I, I, I kind of wanted to understand his thinking. Um, and absolutely no doubt this is a big game for us, you know, and I could understand the the desire to want some seniority in midfield and maybe on any could could understand the occasion and you know even looking back to last year maybe there was a an idea to to be the kind of foil for Thomas Party who who had been struggling of late um but the thing is with Onneni I never can get too mad at him because he is what he is like we know what he does and mm. you know he's going to pass it backwards sometimes and he's going to pass it to to Tommy Asu sometimes and you know that's fine. He, he he can be perfectly safe and secure on the ball, but I just felt, um, and this is no slight on him, that the message it kind of gave even before the game started was kind of a slightly negative one. And that's and that's not to be again critical of El Nenny. I just felt that having had Sambi respond so well against Newcastle, or even having the option to play Maitland Niles, to be honest, after his man of the match performance would have been more of a um, sort of, they would have followed Arteta's words more accurately from from the last couple of weeks. And I just felt even before the game that put a kind of question mark over the team and the lineup. Ryan, you know, the, there is this perception of El Nenny as a, a very safe player, which I think he is. There's no question about that. I looked at the stats and he played 34 of 39 or completed 34 of 39 forward passes. He also got an assist, which I think is overlooked because of the way that goal went down. It was Elneny's header, which fell to Smith Rowe. And, and by the book, that is an assist. If you're going to give it to any other player, you give it to, to Elneny. And I don't think he was bad necessarily. I think there's a Thomas Partey conversation that we need to have. I just wonder as well, is perhaps some of the logic of that decision, when you have Aubameyang on the pitch, who's a pretty low-touch player, and you've got Martinelli on the pitch, who, in comparison to Bakayo Saka, for example, is definitely more low-touch than him. So as well as providing that little bit of experience uh, alongside Thomas Partey, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, it was about maybe having somebody else on the pitch who had a bit more composure, a bit more control on the ball, even if people are often a bit underwhelmed with what he does with it. Yeah, the control thing, I think, is the reason. Because I think even though Sambi had quite a... I think he had the most passes and pass completion against Newcastle, but his pass completion was something like 11% lower against Liverpool. Now, Manchester United aren't Liverpool and they're not going to hurt you in the ways that Liverpool are, but the way that they will hurt you is if that you... If you given if if you turn the ball over too cheaply, and I think that as impressive as Sambi has been at points this season, I think there have been games where he's given possession back to the opposition a little bit too cheaply. There was the famous Ramsdale kind of like look up thing, you know, mm. when when he did that. So I wonder whether that was in Arteta's thinking, and it was just more about building momentum and kind of recirculating the ball. But then we'll probably get onto it later. But in the in the whole scope of the game, it didn't really turn out that way anyway. There was there was a moment where Arsenal lost complete control of the game in the first half. So I understand the inclusion. I don't think the execution of it was, or I don't think the execution justified it to the level even with the assist. If you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean you mentioned the the point at which Arsenal lost control of the game or ceded control of the game, and I'll stick with you, Ryan. You know, it came after the goal. I think we should probably talk about this goal a bit because it's lost uh, a bit in the the you know the wake of the result and and everything else. It was a really bizarre situation, wasn't <laughs> so it? Because <laughs> I like if I was a Manchester United fan. I would be looking at David De Gea this morning and thinking, fuck, you got away with one there. What were you doing? And that weirdness where he just sort of got stood on by Fred, fell over and stayed down while play went on. Smith Rowe cracks the ball in the back of the net after El Nenny's header. The referee then blew the whistle after the ball went in. And the way he was standing, it looked to me like he was going to give a free kick to Manchester United for a foul on the goalkeeper by a Manchester United player. That, that that was what I was expecting, even though I could see no reason why that goal couldn't or shouldn't be given. It was a really strange three or four minutes. I mean, do you think, do you think that had any effect on what happened next? Like if it had just gone in and been a goal, could we have, would it have been a different momentum? 
I, do you know what? I think so, actually. I think because you could see that, well, I mean, first of all, there were a couple of people being like, what the, what the hell are Arsenal doing here? And I looked at it and from the point of where the ball comes out to Elneny, I think from, from the moment of contact on De Gea from Fred to when the ball is in the back of the net, I think there's four seconds. And if you look at where the ball is and how, how many players there are in the box, Elneny probably doesn't even know De Gea's down. Smith Rowe doesn't even look up, he just shoots. So I think putting any level of lack of sportsmanship on the Arsenal side of it is it's just bollocks. But I think the thing with De Gea was that he 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 looked away from the ball. He just like kind of curled up in a ball. It was just like, I hope it, I hope this is all going to be okay. It was like waiting for something to pass, you know? Mm. And you could see Atkinson go to blow the whistle and then pull it away again, being like, well, actually, what do I blow the whistle for here? And you could kind of, I, I kind of feel a little bit for referees in that sense because I posted a thing afterwards. A, fr- a guy replied to me who's a Man United fan. He was just like, I'm a Man United fan, but it's legal. The goal is fully legal. There's no way you can rule it out. And I said, this is what I think it is. It's like super annoying. If you, if it had happened to Arsenal, I'd have been like, surely this can't stand. I don't know why it can't stand, but surely it just can't because it's so bizarre. But then you're thinking, well, there is no illegality in there. But then as always with things like that, there's usually like a subclause under a subclause in the laws of the game that's like, oh yeah, actually they could have ruled it out. But I don't think there was here. And you could just see Martin Atkinson. I kind of felt really sorry for him because he was just like, fuck, I really don't know what to do here. This is, this is, I don't know why this guy's just bailed. Yeah. What, like VAR, help me out. Well, and, yeah. I yeah. Think- I mean, basically it was a goal, but I think in, because of the context of the goal, I think it gave United more of a kind of a cause than they had before that. Yeah. You know what I, I mean, it was yeah. just like Bruno Fernandes was just like, I'm really angry about this. I'm not really sure why. I think it's probably at De Gea. It should be at De Gea, but he's my goalkeeper. No, fuck it. I'm going to blame the ref. And then everyone seemed to have like this, this impetus again which they didn't really have mm. before that I mean I, I have to uh, say I don't have any sympathy whatsoever for Martin Atkinson over anything you're a, <laughs> you're a better human than I am uh, Ryan but uh, Phil it was a really strange situation I mean he was standing there you could see VAR talking to him I think VAR was just saying no there's no way you can rule this out on, on the TV coverage we had here over in Ireland um, I think it was Gary Breen who was on co-commentary who was going what have Arsenal done wrong here there's no, like literally Arsenal have not done anything wrong but somehow after a, a histrionics from a one of their own players, Manchester United came away from this with a sense of injustice when really that, you know, I don't know how that happened. Well, I mean, it's what Ryan said. If you look at it kind of play by play, um, Fred is the one who steps on De Gea. There's no offside blocking any vision. There's there's nothing wrong from an Arsenal perspective. And then he wins the head affair. Smith Rowe finds the bottom corner. But for me, the most, Obviously, it was a bizarre sequence, but the most annoying thing for me was that not a single Arsenal player actually appealed the decision when he uh, when he blew up initially. They all just kind of, uh, you know, got back into their positions and were walking away from the incident. And I was like, what are you doing? I was up in my living room, like, screaming. <laughs> that there's nothing wrong with that. This is perfectly fine. Um, I mean, do you think they knew that? Know, do you think they were confident that the goal would be given because they knew that no Arsenal player had done anything wrong? I mean, I know what you're saying, I and I was a bit so. the same, but... I'm, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. I don't think... I think maybe they they saw De Gea on the floor and thought, oh, he's probably milking a head injury here or something, but I don't know. I just I just saw everybody walking away. I think the only player to like berate the referee a bit was Oneni, actually, interestingly mm. But it was just so strange to see everybody walking away because I was screaming and I was convinced they were going to disallow it because, like you said, that kind of long delay um, where Atkinson's just standing next to De Gea with the whistle in his mouth and I was just waiting for him to drop the ball next to De Gea and walk away. Um, But yeah, it was a completely legitimate goal. But as you said, for some reason, that just completely swung the sort of the impetus and and the momentum in in United's favour and... You know, I'm sure we'll come on to it, but it's not uh, a unique thing for Arsenal and, and this Arsenal side to to suddenly sit back and seed control. And, you know, it was just really frustrating to watch that again. Yeah, well, let's stick with you on that particular point because it has happened more than once 
this season where we go in front and sometimes it's a two-goal lead and we sit back and you can understand it a, a little more. But, you know, there is a line, I think, between you've scored a goal, do you really put the hammer down and try and get another one and, and capitalize on your momentum or do you consolidate? Do you expect the opposition to come back at you and, and have a go? And certainly United were a bit more fueled by this this injustice that they felt, even though there wasn't any. Uh, but it, it, it's clear that Arsenal took their foot off the gas, for want of a better expression. Um, in the opening 30 minutes, we had 20 completed passes in the United attacking third. For the rest of the first half, we had just 17. And I know game states change and all of that kind of stuff, but how do you... How do you view that? Because I, 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 I don't know if you've seen the tweet, but Simon Collins from the Evening Standard was saying, Arteta wary of Arsenal sitting deep after the goal. He's motioning for the team to get out. He says, this is not the way that I want the team to play. This is not instruction. So what is it? If it's not instruction, why are they doing the opposite of what he says? If it is some kind of instruction, are they doing it well enough? How do you view this? It's a it's a really difficult one because obviously we're not privy to everything that happens, you know, behind mm. the scenes. But I think if you look at the team and you consider it's a very young a young side, we know that um maybe their their natural tendency is to kind of defend what they've got. Um but it's what we were talking about before about the, the selection of El Neri, who theoretically was in to force more control. Um and in that period after we scored to half time, our midfield was a complete disaster. Um, like the ball was a potato and Thomas Party and Elnen could not wait to get rid of it. There was like bad first touches, there were under hit passes, there were misplaced passes. And, you know, United weren't even pressing us. You know, it was like a couple of, you know, just a standards, you know, thing when Bruno Fernandes would push up, Sancho would push up, but there was no kind of intent to press. And we just did not want that ball. I think, you know, even when it went wide to Nuno Tavares or or Tomiyasu, there was they were just like putting it down the line for nobody. And it was like, you just keep the ball for a few minutes, you know? And it was really kind of disappointing because, you know, they, they didn't even put the burners on. They Obviously, they were still chasing the equaliser, but I never felt in any way that United were like pushing us. And the thing with sitting back is there's two kinds. You can you can sit back and and sort of seed control, or you can sit back and manufacture pressure from the other team. And if you give a team like Manchester United that kind of time on the ball and that kind of you know territorial domination, no matter how bad they've been playing, they can always hurt you because they've got Jadon Sancho playing, they've got Bruno Fernandes playing, they've got Ronaldo in and around the box, who's probably the best one touch finisher we've we've ever seen. And it's just like you're you're kind of asking for it in a way, um, and I I don't understand it. We did it at Leicester, you know. We've done it against Spurs as well a, a little bit, even though the, the circumstances were kind of different. And you could see it happening. And and to to concede just before half time for me that was like, you know, probably the worst thing that we could do because it completely changed not only the the impetus of the game but the half time uh, you know talks and and it just put them in a in a positive mindset and and put us down you know which which mm. showed again in the early stages of the second half Ryan do you think this team's issues when it comes to goal scoring which I think are obvious and everybody can see that we don't score enough goals do you think that might play a part in this kind of behavior in that you've scored and you're like okay let's go and score again but maybe there isn't the confidence in our ability to get that second goal, which then transmits itself or translates rather into a more defensive mindset, even if it's not necessarily what's being instructed, like go and do that thing that you're not really that good at doing or not that capable of doing on a consistent basis. It, you kind of go the opposite way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's, it's worth remembering that obviously this is a young side, right? We've talked about it a lot, but I think what often happens with young sides when they kind of start to develop is that they're so naive. They're just like, 
It's like when you see videos of like, you know, when people bring kittens home and they're just always on someone's head or they're climbing up on like crazy shit and you're just like, fuck, these, they're really fun this lot, but they don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> and, that, and that's something that you often see with young football sides where they'll just go and attack because they don't really know what else to do. They just want to play football and they're super exciting and they'll hammer teams 5-0 or something like that. You know, like think of those, those really, uh, that great Monaco side that got under Jardine that ended up getting pulled apart really young. There's always been teams like this come through in Europe. And the problem with Arsenal, I think, is that they're kind of not that. They're like almost a a young, naive team that's playing or that's attempting to play with this hyper-structure, hyper-control. And then you kind of don't really get a, any of either. You don't get the the watertight defense where you like Liverpool a couple of years ago when you're just like mm. if Liverpool score, you're not, you're not, you're not winning. You're just not winning. Um, but like you said, they're not creating enough chances. And I think that what happens this season, I think we spoke about it last time I was on Andrew about how like compared this Arsenal side to, you know, an NBA side that's young and got a load of great draft picks is that you're going to have these huge bumps along the way and they're going to suck. But if the patience is there, then this will develop into a really good team. But the problem is, I think, that what we've seen from Arsenal this season is that if there is an ounce of a scent or like a smidgen of a sense of occasion, they just wobble. They're like, what are we doing? And I think that happens. That happened against United, I think. I think they played Manchester United at Old Trafford as an occasion as opposed to this Manchester United side at the moment. And I think that like Phil said, the hot potato thing was perfect because this is a United side that even though in the last two games they have showed they've shown signs of potentially having an idea of maybe how to press it, it, with more coaching. There were points after that goal that Arsenal were making them look like 2011 Dortmund. You know, it was just like, whoa, Arsenal can't get out. Why can't Arsenal get out? Why do Arsenal feel like they're smothered and there isn't any real cohesion in the Manchester United press? It wasn't really... Uh, it wasn't super worrying. So I think that, I think there is just a sense of kind of like what now sometimes when Arsenal take the leading games like this. And when that's, when they're away from home, I think the Spurs game was probably a bit of an anomaly because it was just like, well, we're at home. This is the mm. derby. The crowd were amazing at the Emirates that day. Um, here, it's a little bit like something's probably going to go wrong, isn't it? You can kind of almost sense it everyone's looking around at each other but and like you can just kind of sense there's just this 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 nervousness which is concerning and i don't really know what the answer to that is to be honest phil the we can talk about that collective issue and i don't know that we have a necessarily a good explanation as as to why it happens and why it keeps happening but you know i suppose when there is a man in charge of a team and it displays the same traits over and over again you've got to look at the manager you've got to question the instruction the coaching the preparation the organization the, the in-game management which I, I think we'll come to now in a few minutes but would it be also fair to say you know playing devil's advocate a little bit here that the the reason we got nothing from this game while in part down to that uh, seeding of control and possession in the first half was probably more down to individual errors and defensive deficiencies rather than a collective structural issue. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, that's a reasonable kind of uh, a decision to, to come to. I mean, it, for me, what happens is when you cede so much control they were gradually pushing us further and further back. And it's interesting because, you know, Fred for me is, you know, bang average. Um, but it's his kind of third man running, not only for the first goal where he runs off Elneny, but the third goal that he runs off Odegaard as well for the for the penalty that he's kind of the, the game breaker in that sense. And it was just kind of, for me, the second goal as well was Nuno Tavares pushing forward and, and a sloppy touch from Emil Smith-Rowe and then that whole right side, sorry, for the for the first goal, or was it Ronaldo's one? When, when yeah, Nuno Ronaldo. Tavares like, that was yeah, the pushed, goal, pushed yeah. forward. And obviously Odegaard had that kind of bizarre moment of, I don't even know what he was thinking there. It was just the most crazy challenge. 
um, I think he probably realized that Fred got a yard on him and was like, panic mode. Um, I'm just going to try and get the ball here in a last ditch attempt. But again, there was a couple of other moments like when Ben White gave me Mustafi flashbacks with Ronaldo in the corner. And I was like, don't dive in there. Ronaldo was going nowhere. He's not going to outrun you. He's 55 years old and you've basically given him the whole left side because you like dived in really stupidly. And there was another moment where Thomas Partey just turned and I don't know whether he didn't get a shout or he was just completely unaware of his surroundings, but he turned right into Bruno Fernandes and they nearly scored from that. And I was like, man, just little things like that. They, they're going to hurt you. They're going to punish you if you keep doing them. Um, And it's frustrating because I don't think United were, you know, putting us under any real pressure during the whole game. But as we said before, they have quality that's going to hurt you. Um, And, you know, no matter what position they're in at Old Trafford, no matter what their form is, their individual quality can hurt you. And when I saw Ronaldo stepping up for that penalty, I mean, did either of you think that Ramsdale was going to save it? No. Um, for me, that was always going to hit the back of the net. And it it annoys me because I, I hate the feeling of feeling like the opposition don't have to work for their goals. Um, and I, I felt yesterday that every goal was very simple and, and kind of handed to them in a sense, because if you look through each one individually, El Nenny could have been sharper to track the run of Fred for the first one. I mean, Sancho, to be fair, did very well for the first one. But I felt like Anneni completely lost lost Fred coming into the box. Second one, Nuno Tavares has left a, a gaping hole down the our left, their right, which Bruno Fernandes just picks out Ronaldo. And and the third one again, Odegaard's too slow to the run from Fred, um, and and just loses his composure for that one second, and it's a penalty. I mean, I don't know how Atkinson didn't give that. Yeah, me neither. Um, from the first moment because it was clear. Um, but yeah, that's that's the overriding feeling that I have. I. I I hate it when we make it easy for the opposition because I think generally we've done well defensively this year. Um, but you just see a couple of those moments and you're like, man, that's you know one or two things changing and, and those goals don't happen. So for me, the overriding feeling is kind of one of frustration because I think it, they could have been avoided. Yeah, Ryan, I think you can look at every goal and when you've got all the replays and you can watch them again, you can say, well, that guy should have done this and that guy should have done that. But... I think it's very applicable to the goals that we conceded that, you know, we had chances to do better defensively. Um, Ben White, I think before the first goal, doesn't make a very good clearance. He just plays it to Harry Maguire um, instead of, you know, I'm not saying he should just lump it all the way up the other end of the pitch, but if he does, you know, you can get organized. There were uh, issues beyond that. I think White as well was not quite aware of of Fernandez in the box the way that he should have been. Tavares was trying to play and trying to get out and trying to um, intercept, which I think he actually did quite well. But I think Smith Rowe, who looked tired to me, last night was caught on his heels and and they exploited that space. I don't think Thomas Partey was great. Again, Fred was making a a run into the box there off Ronaldo. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's mad, isn't it, that Fred could go from like this chump in the first 15 minutes who couldn't pass the ball to like he looked, uh, (laughs) he was hugely influential in their win. And the Odegaard um, tackle, stupid, clumsy, daft, whatever you want to call it, you know, particularly frustrating given that he was the one who got us back into the game after Ronaldo had scored, which I thought was actually quite a pleasing aspect to to that second half because I was like, oh God, here we go. I, you know, I don't want to see Ronaldo celebrating at the best of times, but we cut short those celebrations. It was like two minutes. We scored a goal, uh, a pretty simple goal. And one, which I think if you're a Manchester United fan, you're looking at it and you're going, why are all our defenders running towards the goal rather than like, being anywhere near aware of where the Arsenal players are. Odegaard good finish with his right foot into the bottom corner. It's 2-2. It's still there, you know? But that third mistake, um, I'm not here to crucify the guy, but, you know, it ultimately proved uh, the match-winning one for for Manchester United. Yeah, I think the whole... I was thinking after the game about... um, how weird the whole thing was in in general there it it was that and i was texting a friend of mine and he just said you know ultimately talent has won today 
And I think that was a really interesting point that you made because if you step back and think about it in the wider context of it, Man United should be beating Arsenal 3-2 at Old Trafford at the moment. If you think about what they've spent, the players that they've signed and the players that they have, even though they're going through this kind of managerial transition, this is kind of a result that should happen. So in one sense, it's easy to compartmentalise it in that sense and being like, well, if you actually look at how much, for example, Manchester United have spent in transfer fees over the last however long and who they've signed with that money, yeah, I could kind of take a 3-2 defeat. But then when you actually watch the game itself, it's like, man, we should have been out of sight, really. You know, we shouldn't, these guys should not have had a sniff. So it's this real kind of like, oh man, that sucks. But there is a there is an understand uh, there is an understanding there that obviously this is a Manchester United for example are what you'd call like a win now squad right they they are a win they've been put put together to win now Arsenal are way off that at the moment and yet in the in the game itself like Phil said and like you said it's like we basically just handed them everything so. <sighs> I've, I I came away from it thinking a little bit like this. This, without doubt, for example, is the most frustrating and annoying result of the season, because I think those early games, the Brentford one, I think we said on the last time I, we spoke, Andrew, like Brentford, even though they've had a bit of a sticky run, they're going to take a lot of points off some really good teams this season. I don't think losing to them on the first day of the season is a massively wild result. We know about the rest of the games, and then obviously. Um, the the Palace one was a little bit tricky, but this one was just kind of like, there was a chance there to go into the top four mm. in December, which feels like it would have been huge, like genuinely quite huge. And beating Manchester United at Old Trafford, we were, what, five points ahead of them before the, the yeah. game side, I think. So open, opening up an eight-point gap on that, there was like, there was almost like, I think that for me, I know I'm rambling a little bit, I think for that, because it was quite a confusing aftermath. I think for me, that was the main thing. It was just like, oh man, that's a real shame because that would have been, you know, Musa loves to call them statement victories, but it would have been a statement mm. victory. It would have, you know, all the hype around West Ham, Arsenal would have gone above them. Um, and for all of the pessimism around Arsenal, looking at the table and being fourth at this point behind those three sides, which are just light years ahead of everyone else in the league I think would have been amazing I think for for, for me that's the most disappointing thing that we, Arsenal didn't lose by being played off the park and yeah it's just it, that's 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 the main the real kind of like the thing that sucks for me about this game it's it's a, a huge swing on the confidence ometer mm. isn't it you know yeah that's that's a really good way to put it yeah uh, because if you beat Manchester United Phil you're going okay this team Maybe it's got a bit more about it than I thought. And when you lose like that, you're thinking, oh, maybe, maybe there's much less about this team than I thought, or 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 some of the worries that I have about them are are still way too close to the surface, if you know what I mean. So there's that aspect of it, but then there is the, and I don't know how much you think this is relevant beyond it being one of the things that 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 is used to gauge the the level of a team the big games so we've been beaten by manchester united we've been beaten by chelsea we've been hammered by liverpool we've been hammered by manchester city albeit on a day when we had 10 men uh, and away from home at man city so how much stock do you put in that? Uh, I mean, does it really matter if Arsenal, let's say, go to Everton on Monday and, and win and win the next four or five games? Like, uh, you know, a win against Everton in points terms is better than two draws, uh, you know, at United and Everton. There are confidence issues. You've got an unbeaten run, et cetera, et cetera, but ultimately comes down to points. So, like, is that something we need to be especially concerned about or is the focus or should the focus be on picking up the points in the games where the games that we're expected to pick up the points in? I mean, obviously, big games are definitely a, a measure of progress and and kind of, in particular, the, those games that we had earlier on this season, you could kind of put to one side because we, as you said, we had 10 men, there were players missing through through COVID and stuff like that. And you can, you know, obviously they happen, but you can put those aside and say, okay, we're, we're going to move on now. But for me, 
we're in a, in, a, in a stage of our development now in, a, in our process where, as Ryan mentioned before, Liverpool, Chelsea and Man City are just comfortably, you know, ahead of anybody else in this league. Um, you know, I think there's, there's only four teams with a positive goal difference uh, in the Premier League and those three are all in like the 20s and, every, and West Ham are on four, plus four or plus five or something like that. And I think it's just, you know, where we are not there yet. Um, and people will be listening to this and scoff and say, well, we're Arsenal and we, why should we be looking at them from, you know, from this kind of angle? And, and I don't want to do it. Um, I, I don't, I don't like doing it, but I can kind of understand the wider context of things and say, look, we want to be there, but we're not there at the moment. And where we should be judging ourselves is how we can beat the teams below us and around us. Um, which is fine because we've beaten Spurs, a very good day at the Emirates, a really good win. Um, but for me today was a, as kind of Ryan mentioned, this was a big chance to kind of cement something within the side that says, look, we, we are here. And, you know, this was a United side who'd only won, I think, one of their last uh, nine Premier League games. Um, two defeats, six draws, one win, I think was their record coming into this game in the Premier League. Um, they have Michael Carrick as their manager, you know, who looks like a, a six-former when he's wearing that little suit in the, on the touchline. Hey, he listen, doesn't, man, undefeated he, as a manager, though. <laughs> yeah, he, he doesn't look the part whatsoever. And obviously, the atmosphere at Old Trafford was different. You know, they're at home, so they can get G'd up by a few things, but... For me, this was a big opportunity missed because eight points between us and United would have been a, a hefty um, sort of margin going into a busy Christmas period. It puts them down. It gives us a boost. And like you said, we could respond on, on Monday with a win at Everton and, and everything's kind of rosy again. But for me, it was, again, you know, I can take a defeat, but it was more of the manner in which we lost and how we we want to conduct ourselves in, in, in these kind of games because I think there was an opportunity for us there to to really make a statement. And, you know, it's about the response now. As Arsene Wenger said, it's always about the next game. He was very big on that. Um, but for me, there was a big opportunity here to, to kind of make something uh, stick for this Arsenal side. And for me, I mean, I'm sure we'll get onto it, but there was a, a lot of disappointment from me in our, quote unquote senior players who Arteta referenced after the game actually um, quite scathingly and he said, you know, they they need to set the example and the young players need to follow. And I think when we needed them yesterday, they were kind of nowhere to be found, which is again another disappointment um, and another frustrating angle to this to this game. Maybe, you know, the the statement is we're not quite ready to make the statement. Um mm -hmm which isn't to excuse it, you know, and we were architects of our own downfall. So, and that that's in our control, ultimately. That's what makes it frustrating, is that that aspect of it is in our control, what we do or what we don't do, regardless of, of what United do in those circumstances. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
let's do the senior players thing. I don't know if we want to take them one at a time, but I've seen two in particular um, come in for some stick on social media. So, Ryan, I'll start with you. And I think Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is, is the first name that comes to mind. Look, I don't think he's been great. I do struggle with this one because I'm not convinced by... <clears throat> our striking options or our, or our striking alternatives, if you like. So Aubameyang has had some misses. I don't think he missed anything particularly egregious last night. There was one at the back post where mm. De Gea made a save, but a replay showed that he was probably going to be given offside. It was one of those where, you know, you would expect him to stick the ball in the back of the net. I'm not saying his form is great. I mentioned this on the preview podcast with Lewis over on Patreon, where I, I'm a little bit, I find it form a player out of form is easy. I get it. A striker who doesn't score goals is out of form. Simple as that. But I don't really know where the Aubameyang is lazy. Aubameyang doesn't care stuff is coming from. And I think that's what has surprised me about some of the prevailing conversations on social media. Like I completely get worrying about his goal scoring and whether or not age is catching up with him and whether he's sharp enough and things like that. But I, I, I don't see a player who isn't trying. I see no. a player who isn't scoring, but not through lack of uh, just standing around doing nothing. And I also think that whichever striker you put in this current system is going to face the same issue in terms of paucity of chances where a miss is more egregious because you don't get the opportunity to make up for it because you don't get the service. I was thinking about this the other day and I, I have no insight into this, but I wonder whether the captaincy is a little is weighing a little bit heavy on Aubameyang because I think he's, he strikes me as a guy who takes that responsibility very seriously. But I also think that when you're leading a line, the line in, the, in a side that's not scoring many goals and you're the main striker, that's also quite a hefty responsibility if you look at his career, he's always kind of thrived. He's never really been like a super dominant alpha number nine. Like he's not like a Haaland, for mm. example, who was just like, give me the ball. I'm going to bully everyone and, you know, just kind of flex for the camera. He's always kind of, even in those Dortmund sides where he got turbocharged under, under Tuchel, he was very much like in this kind of collective sense, part of the, mm. part of the squad, if that makes sense. And I think that when he... He seemed to really enjoy when Arsenal went with that young three behind him last season. It's, he seemed to give him a little bit of kind of a new injection into kind of like, oh, this is fun. Actually, people are creating and there's all this youth behind me and I'm a little bit the older head and this is fun. But I do wonder whether he's looking around a little bit and being like, yeah, there's no one else really stepping up either, which isn't to... um, you know, give him a pass or anything because he is the captain. But I do wonder whether... There's just a little bit, because if you do look around that that whole eleven, who is, who are the people who are gonna, for example, like Phil said before about like berating the referee, who's gonna be the first person to step to the referee? And I think, even though it's an intangible and it's one of those kind of you know those like heart and effort and all of that kind of stuff, I do wonder whether because I think I think Aubameyang is quite sensitive to what it means like he, he really wanted to stay at Arsenal for example I think it means a lot to him and I do wonder whether just that whole sense of responsibility is a little bit too much and he could do with a couple of extra pair of hands to to kind of spread the weight mm. um, and he's always been a streaky striker and, but I think that when when there are no other options I think um, you know I think we've all been in uh, different areas of life where it's kind of like oh shit if I don't do this then it's not going to get done and that kind of mm. weighs a little bit heavier imagine doing that in front of like 80,000 people who are just being like you're shit mate like every week it's kind of yeah yeah I don't know maybe I'm being too too kind because he has paid a lot of money to play football but I think um, I think it's just we've we, Arsenal have done really well in addressing certain weaknesses within the squad and I think giving Aubameyang a little bit of help up top I think is the next big step. How do you view Aubameyang Phil before we go on to, to Thomas Partey? Because I think there's for me there's a sense that when he doesn't score we look for him to do the things that he's not really that good at. 
Like, if he's not scoring, okay, you, you drop, you get involved, you link the play, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying he can't do those things. I think we've seen him do that. But, like, in the end, we're asking a player to be something he's not, um, you know, he's he's a goal scorer. He's a chance taker. He's a finisher. And I know people are going to be listening to this saying, well, he can't finish anything at the moment, which is true. But, you know, we know the kind of player that he is. And at 32 years of age, he is not going to, you know, change really. So I have some sympathy in that sense because, you know, it reminds me a little bit of, of when we had Giroud up front, that people wanted – Giroud was what he was, the kind of player that he was. Aubameyang is who he is. And there's this sort of clamor for these guys to be something that they're not all the time, if that makes sense. Like Giroud is like a 20-goal-a-season striker and everyone was giving him pelters because they wanted him to be a 30-goal-a-season striker. He was never going to be that. And I think Aubameyang is never going to be anything other than the player he is, but we're asking him to do a lot of things which don't play to his strengths. And again, that's not to make excuses. It's just to analyze the situation. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's funny because, you know, it, it, this is a prime example of want, wanting what you don't have. Because when we had Giroud, everyone was like, we need a striker that can run in behind. We need somebody you can, with a bit of pace, to be on the end of chances. And now Aubameyang is going through a bit of a tough spell and everyone wants to do some Vlaovic because he can hold up the ball and bring others into play. And it's like, you know, you always want what you don't have because you're being frustrated and the illusion of, of something different is, you know, being dangled mm. in front of you like, a you know, the, the carrot to the donkey. So for me, you, you nailed it. Aubameyang has never been the striker that's going to post up against the defender and, you know, um, bring Saka and Emma Smith-Rowe into, into play. I mean, he, he's done it on occasion. I mean, we saw it against uh, against Spurs. His combination with, with Smith-Rowe that day was, was really nice on the left. And he did similar against Aston Villa when Smith-Rowe scored. There was a lovely bit of you know play between those two to get Smith Rowe away but first of all there's been a, a, a long issue with Arteta and our on our sides not creating enough and as you mentioned you know if you miss one there's so much uh hyper analysis on that on those missed opportunities because they mean so much um and and for me that's a big issue that we've had but I also look at Aubameyang and I see a shadow of himself in front of goal. I mean, there was that one chance where Martinelli just kind of took it by the scruff of the neck and went, took three players out of the game in the middle, played a really nice pass into into his uh, into his stride. He kind of cut back and the shot that just sort of dribbled into De Gea and I was just looking at the screen and I put my head in my hands and I was like, that's bad. That's really bad. Um and, that, you know, there was even a, an opportunity to give it back to Martinelli because everyone was suddenly drawn to Aubameyang. And you see you see Martinelli on the right completely unmarked and just a little bit of awareness there would have put Martinelli in on goal. But, you know, how many times have we seen him, you know, I'm thinking of uh, that goal against Fulham, that goal against Liverpool in the Community Shield where he gets it on that left-hand side and just bends one into the corner. And that effort was just pathetic. I mean... And even the one where he was called offside from from the the little flick on from Martinelli, I mean, how do you not connect with that? I mean, it was it wasn't it wasn't fast. It was at a nice height, you know. He derives perfectly on the situation. There was nothing really difficult about that finish, and he just puts it straight at De Gea. And it's like, I don't know what whether it's a mental thing with him at the moment. I definitely agree that there's a, a burden on him. That's you know, um, you know, the other the other players need to weigh in as well. Um, and it's difficult because let's say you want to bring him out. Who do you put in? Because yeah. Lacazette, you know, you can put him there, but he he hasn't scored this season. He scored one goal in the Premier League. Um, and, you know, Nketi is leaving. So why would we put our stock into him? Maybe there's a case for Martinelli now. But again, do you really want a front three of Smith Rowe on the left, Saka on the right, and Martinelli up front? It's, you know, we've put ourselves in a really tough spot here. And in some ways, I sympathise for Aubameyang because I feel like there's a lot going against him and the team is generally quite um, weak up front. We don't score many goals. We know that it's been a problem for a long time, but I also feel like um, he needs to improve as well. And I don't think it's an effort thing because he's the the player that's uh, completed the most pressures under Arteta this year. I think there's been a big swing in his defensive work. So all that stuff about effort and he doesn't care anymore for me is 
it's, you can't measure that. It's intangible for me. That's nonsense. Um, but there's just something about him. And I think his shoulders are down, his facial expressions are down and you can really feel it with him when he's not on it. And he's just going through another tough spell at the moment. And we kind of need to get him out of this funk because we're going to struggle. Yeah. A goal would be the tonic, I think, for Aubameyang. It's a confidence uh, thing for strikers. And it's not unusual. But mm. like you say, it's hard not to worry because the alternatives and the options that we have are not particularly great. I want to come to maybe a couple of players, um, you know, just based on the last part of, of the Manchester United game in a moment. But Ryan, Thomas Partey. Another disappointing kind of night for him. And even afterwards, he said himself, he admitted himself, um, he said, I have to keep doing my best, keep trying to try and come back to my best because the team needs me. So there's an acknowledgement on his part that that he's not at the level that he wants to be, that any of us want him to be at. Um <sighs> I find this one a really difficult one to to analyze because I think the quality is there. Certainly when he signed, everyone had, uh, acknowledged this is a, a top-class central midfield player who, for whatever reason, we have not seen the best of on a consistent basis at Arsenal. Yeah, I think again... I think he's someone who really thrives with having someone there to kind of shoulder the burden. I actually think he really misses Granit Xhaka because I think Granit Xhaka is very much like the bad cop to Partey's maybe like cool cop, you know. And um, But I think there are still moments there in every game, even when he plays poorly, there are just moments there that you're like, yeah, not many midfielders in the Premier League can can do that. There was a moment he had last night actually where I think um took the ball and I think it was the... I think it was the second half and it was just a couple of touches that completely took two Man United players out of the game and then he released I think it was you know Tavares down the left side and I was just like that was just no effort for you that's just so like um, kind of natural and I think that his <sighs> I mean I still th- I still think he's going to come good because I just think he's, ulti- he's ultimately too good not to be a good signing for Arsenal. I am concerned. I think, again, there's an element there of, similar to the Aubameyang thing, where he's gone from being not the senior member of that midfield to all of a sudden having to kind of bring Sambi along with him. And then he comes in and isn't really... um, And then he has a strange kind of role within the squad now, I think, compared to what he used to. So... I am concerned about Thomas Partey, but I think if also just confidence and form and and stuff like that is such a, I think it's something that gets overlooked so much and just a lot of people expect players to be ro- robotic. You know, this isn't, we're not playing FIFA. It's not like next game and everyone's 100%. It's just, it's way more complex than that. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm as concerned as a lot of people are but I'm a lot more concerned than I was maybe six months ago, let's okay. say. Phil, quick thoughts on on Thomas Partey? Yeah, actually that, that f- finishing statement from Ryan is kind of where I'm at now. Um, I'm, I'm a bit, big advocate for Thomas Partey. I think when he's on it, he's comfortably our best midfielder. I think, you know, it's frustrating because in pre-season he was looking really sharp. Um, and then he had that stupid injury against Chelsea, which put him back again. And then he obviously needs a couple of weeks to get back to full fitness. But there's an article written by James in The Athletic this morning, um, which is kind of centered around why Arsenal are seeding control and sitting back. And there's a, a segment on Thomas Party that's absolutely damning. Um, and his metrics are down like considerably. It's not just a little bit here and there. It's like touches are down, interceptions are down, duels are down, pass completion is down, passes per game are down, dribbles are down. And it's like, wow, um, what you're seeing comes to life with those numbers. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a really big fan of his. I think when he's on top form, he can be a really elite two-way midfielder. That's what we were buying. You know, at Atletico, he was a, a two-way midfielder who could do everything. But there were some moments yesterday where he was, his passing, man, his passing was awful. Mm. Really, really bad. There was one in the first half under no pressure. We had Tomiyasu and Martinelli both on the right-hand side in acres of space. 
And he just gave it straight to Alex Tellers. And I was like, man, this is, and he put his head down and he was like jogging back. And we need more from that, from him. This is a, you know, this is supposed to be our big statement signing in midfield. We need him to step up. And I completely understand he's been injured. I completely understand that he's kind of the big boy now in the midfield. And that brings new pressure and new responsibility. Completely fine when maybe he hasn't had that kind of responsibility before, but he's just getting the basics wrong sometimes. And what's worrying me the most is how, I mean, how poor he's been in duels. He's being bypassed so often. He's he's losing out on 50-50s that I never really saw him do last season. Um, and I don't know whether he needs to be sat out for a game. Can we even afford him to be sat out for a game? I don't know. But yeah, the last few weeks have really put a question mark on him. And I think we... I think he will turn it around, but we need him to do it quickly because before he goes to AFCON, we've got a tough schedule um, and we kind of need him to step up because, whew, yeah, the last few weeks have not been good. Mm. Not been good. All right, look, I, I want to wrap this up, but I'll stick with you, Phil, on this one. And we're sort of going back to the game and back to the final stages of the game. And Mikel Arteta made a couple of changes where he threw on Alexandra Lacazette for Aubameyang, striker for striker, you need a goal. I have to say I was quite surprised to see Eddie Nketiah come on the pitch. I'm not really sure what the logic was. This is a guy who hadn't played in the Premier League for us so far this season. Um, there were reports during the week that he'd rejected a contract offer. You know, the ins and outs of that particular offer are another thing. But, you know, this is a guy whose future is not with us. It's not to be critical of him. This is the way football works. But he's not going to be with us next season. He hasn't played a great deal of late. He's not necessarily anything other than a penalty box poacher, a guy who'll get his toe or his head on the end of something in the six-yard box in that kind of area. And he was being asked to drop deep and asked to link play and do things like that. And I found it strange. It also raises a huge question about what the fuck is happening with Nicolas Pepe. Because... I get he's a, an imperfect player. I get he's got flaws. He played five minutes of our last five games, but I'm thinking we're away at Old Trafford. We're playing against a defense which is not particularly great. We need a goal. I think Pepe had the most goal involvements for Arsenal last season in terms of goals and assists combined. Mm -hmm. And when you need somebody to deliver something, I, I'm... I'm baffled that even if Pepe has been slightly on the fringes, he is not the guy you turn to in circumstances like this. So that decision, I mean, this is where some of what Arteta did yesterday felt a bit like, well, this is this is sort of like the old Arteta, if you like, and not this this slightly improved recent version that's been easier to get behind. Any thoughts on that? Um, situation, that decision and, you know, what does that say about what's what's going to happen with Pepe? Well, I mean, very topical for this time of year, but stick a fork in Nicola Pepe because he's done. <laughs> um, he's like a turkey, you know, that's that's been ready, primed for the Christmas table. I mean, this is I mean, it's very I mean, we know throughout Arteta's tenure here that he's never really fancied Nicola Pepe but even in some moments there have been times when he could put some form together or he'd be used as kind of the first sub if things weren't going well but now he's just completely out um, and I and I don't even see the opportunity for him to come back in because we saw it a little bit with Martinelli being put on the right against Newcastle when Saka went down I mean I'm sure not many people would have had an issue with that uh, we like Martinelli. He brings a lot to the team. But again, today, when Eddie Nketiah is coming on ahead of you, um, it's, it's you know, it's bad news. Um, and I have general issues with the substitutions because why was, you know, Emil Smith-Rowe looked tired, absolutely fine with him coming off. But why did we need to keep, for example, El Elneny on the pitch or Thomas Partey on the pitch or Tommy Asu on the pitch? We could have easily gone with one midfielder, maybe dropped Erdegaard deep, for example, and stuck on, you know, Nicola Pepe to play wide or, you know, I didn't see the need to bring on Enketia and Lacazette in, in that 
because we just lost all the ability to play through the middle. Yeah. Um, there was obviously we had party and on any sitting there deeper, but without Erdegaard or Smith Rowe, we just completely lost everything around the edge of the box. And there were a couple of crosses coming in from Tavares that found Saka at the back post. But, you know, United had bodies in the way and there was no kind of guile or someone willing to take responsibility in that sense to say, right, I'm going to find the pass here or I'm going to crack open this defence. And we just completely lost any impetus mm. after that. I mean, did we have any kind of big opportunities in that final 15 minutes, those 10 minutes? I mean, apart from that one sack of shot that was blocked by Fred, maybe. Yeah. You know, it was just kind of crossing into the box and seeing what would happen. But to who? And Ketty and Lacazette. It's just like, come on, we need more than that. Um, and yeah, I, I personally didn't understand it. I thought the substitutions were damning for Pepe. It was damning on Arteta in the sense that he's bringing on players who maybe have nothing to contribute. And it was damning in the in-game sense in that they didn't really offer us anything at all. In fact, I think they kind of hindered us. Yeah. So it was just kind of a triple whammy of of bad stuff. Um, and, you know, I hate to, to bring this up, but under Arsene Wenger, you know, he would bring on all the attackers, but I always felt like we could maybe get something from the game um, later on when we kind of chucked everybody on. And I, I just felt like, you know, and Ketia came on, I think he committed three fouls. <laughs> And that was his kind of contribution. So, you know, it just wasn't good. And yeah, in terms of the wider aspect, I think there was a lot to worry about for, um, in terms of the, the subliminal messaging for a few of our players. Yeah, I mean, it was telling, I think, in the final 10, 15 minutes, Ryan, that, that United were quite happy to let Mohamed Elneny have the ball as much as he wanted. I think 36% of his completed passes last night took place in the last 16 minutes. Yeah. And I think Phil's there point there about, you know, like not having anything in terms of creativity and build up and structure um, or even just that little bit of chaos factor. I thought Martinelli really tried his hardest to get us back into the game, had some moments where he tried to make things happen. But but that's not enough. You can't just give the ball to a 20-year-old. It reminded me at times of Saka last season where our plan yeah. was, well, just give it to Saka on the right-hand side and hopefully he'll do something with it. And we asked Martinelli to do something similar last night from the left-hand side without, you know, Sambi, for example, had six key passes against Newcastle. Even if you don't want to start him, there's the potential for him to come on and maybe do something uh, in midfield in the final stages of a game. So I thought those were were poor substitutions from from Mikel Arteta, and the Pepe thing obviously is is going to remain a big issue. Yeah, I I was thinking about the around the hour mark. How would I change this? And obviously, you know, not an elite manager. In case anyone hasn't noticed, but I was thinking actually, do you know what the way every because there was a period where all of a sudden, everyone, Man United and Arsenal players, all looked completely knackered. Like, everyone on the football pitch looked completely knackered. <clears throat> and I was thinking, actually, do you know what? I'd bring Tierney on for Tavash because that last 15, 20 minutes or so was crying out for some element of just structure in an attacking sense. And what I think Tierney does really, really well is his delivery and combinations in the left-hand side always are quite accurate and pinpoint and they're, they're the closest thing I think where, that we get to create uh, creating those kind of Manchester City chances you know when he combines and I thought actually Dallow I thought played quite well for Manchester United but I think at that point of the game and also from a leadership aspect as well Tierney's going to come on and really same as Lacazette in a way so I would have actually brought Tierney Lacazette and I couldn't figure out the third one but I think it definitely would have involved what Phil said and drop in Erdo Erdogan into midfield with Partey because I was just like I can understand I can understand that it may not have been a bit of a popular substitution when you're tracing the game and you're bringing on a left back for a left back but I just think that what Tierney does offer you in an attacking sense is very different to Nuno and I think at that point of the game I thought that would have been quite an interesting thing to 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 see because like you said there just seemed to be no actual um what's the word, like structure, a combination or much thought into our attacking play at a point in, in the game where 
like even with a three two, I I'd nearly tweeted. I was just like, there does feel like there's another five goals in this game. <laughs> there really could be, like for anyone, because it just felt so unbalanced and unstructured that any if if one side had really imposed some kind of structure on the other, I think they would have walked away with it. Mm. Um, the Enketia thing. <clears throat> Yeah, I just don't really get, to be honest. I think that once the decision has clearly been made and he's not ever been a prolific goal scorer for Arsenal, I think that's a really strange decision. Um, and the Pepe thing, I mean, I have nothing to add on that that you guys already haven't covered. So. All right. Well, look, we'll wait and see what happens. Uh, some decisions to make, I think, ahead of Monday uh, when we face an Everton side who, like Manchester United, have been on a, a pretty bad run of late. So they'll be licking their lips at facing the team that ends bad runs for teams on bad runs. But uh, hopefully we can avoid that. Uh, lads, thanks very much as always. Uh, great to talk to you, Phil Costa. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks so much. And Ryan Hunt, thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed to the lads. Phil is on Twitter. He is at underscore Phil Costa, at underscore Phil Costa. And Ryan is at Ryan Hun, at Ryan Hun. And of course, he's the co-host of the Stadio podcast on Ringer FC and also part of the Righty's House team, which I'm sure many of you listen to as well. That was on lots of the Spotify thingamajigs, whatever it's called, uh, that we were sent over the last couple of days. So if you're not already following and listening, etc., etc., go do that right now. Um, I think we'll leave it there for today. Of course, we've got a game on Monday night against Everton. Um, We can talk about response. We can talk about team selection. We can do all that on the preview podcast that we're going to have over on Patreon. Myself and Lewis will do that for you probably at some point on Sunday. And of course, James and I won't be able to record the Arsecast Extra until Tuesday because uh, A, the game is happening on Monday night. James is going to be up there. So it'll probably be Tuesday afternoon before we have an Arsecast Extra about that particular game. Hopefully we can get ourselves back on track. We need a win from that game. You know, I think this season there have been signs that when the chips have been down, we are capable of responding. And if that's the case on Monday night, I'm sure we'll be feeling a bit better about things on Tuesday. But we will cross that particular bridge when we come to it. As ever, thank you very much indeed for listening. Really appreciate it. And we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Oh, I should just say that in the interest of getting this podcast out really quickly today, I don't really have time to do the end bit of the podcast, the bit after the music that's always there. Uh, These aren't normal circumstances. So I'm just getting this out and making sure that you have something to listen to as quickly as possible. That will, of course, return on next week's show because, well, that's just kind of what we do. Right. Until next time, have yourselves a great weekend. Cheers. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.